Mr. Nixon? What is the truth about our ability to fight the growing menace of communism? Well, first, we must recognize communism for what it is. Mr. Khrushchev understands only strength and firmness. To apologize to him just means weakness. Our next president must show clearly that America won't stand for being pushed around anywhere in the world. But time has made it so that everyone, I included, must fight harder today to preserve the basic liberties guaranteed to us Americans by our Constitution. Hello and welcome to Timber Sycamore, now with the intro shown. All right, episode three, we are discussing the <laughs> Soviet-Afghan war following the invasion of the Soviets up until the withdrawal. Yeah. Um, so, the Soviet-Afghan war is a tragedy for a lot of reasons. But, but understanding where it comes from uh, so last time we talked about the Mujahideen, and we also talked about the Saar Revolution and the 73 Rebellion. Uh, just for a recap, if you want to hear those, you are more than welcome to go back and listen to them. Um, but those things all build up to this event that you discussed, Hayes, which uh, can you give us a short rundown of the ousting of Hafizullah Amin? So the ousting of Hafizullah Amin happens a few weeks after he takes power, sometime in 1979, I believe. And it is it is the precursor to the actual, like, in the straight-up invasion of Afghanistan where the tanks are rolling into Kabul. So Amin was a, as a political figure, was significantly a, it was a liability for the Soviets in a lot of different ways. One of those ways was in trying to like, for his own opportunistic goals, trying to uh, remove Afghanistan from any kind of, like, sense of dependency on the Soviet Union, which had been sort of an issue for the country since the since the administration of Zahir Shah. And he was replaced with a more politically, not a more politically contentious figure, but a definitely a figure of some contention, which was uh, Babrat Karmal who is from the opposite communist faction. There were two communist factions in Afghanistan at the time, the Kalki and the Parchami. Uh, so the tradition that Karmal comes from is the Parchami tradition. He was effectively installed to be the safe option for the Soviets after having witnessed the uh, really nasty feud between the previous leader of the DRA, which was Taraki, and between Amin. So... It's where we came to this point in our last discussion that we concluded, I think, that the entry into Afghanistan by the Soviets was more so a case of mission creep, which seems to be the contention of most scholars working today. At the time, there was this idea that it was a long-term imperialist war playing on this idea that Russia, for centuries, since the 19th century at least, has had aspirations of reaching the Indian Ocean. This does not seem to be the consensus among anyone today. It seems to be the consensus that this is a sort of Soviet Afghanistan, uh, Soviet Vietnam type situation. Like this is the Soviet version of Vietnam, effectively. Which is true to some extent and untrue to others, um, at least in part untrue because in order for the Soviet Union to have a Vietnam, in spite of the many wrongdoings of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, um, it doesn't quite compare to the U.S. 
in either Vietnam or Korea. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. and Vietnam and Korea are more similar to the U.S. and Afghanistan during this than they are than the Soviet Union is necessarily. So when we talk about the war in Afghanistan, the Soviet war, typically what we do is uh, we can break this up very roughly into two parts, I would say. So there's yes. a study from the University of Kansas, their defense college, that separates it actually into four phases. I would say that it is really like these two, these four phases can be split up two and two into, again, two phases in general. We have basically the entry phase and the exit phase. And both of these last about roughly about the same amount of time. So according to this uh, study from the University of Kansas, the uh, phase one goes from December 79, which is the advent of the invasion, the death and replacement of Amin, to February of 80. So this is the beginning where they are starting to station garrisons within the country. They are trying to coordinate military efforts with the rest of, like the Soviets are trying to coordinate their military efforts with the existing DRA. In phase two, we go from March 80 to April 85. So we have the Mujahideen finally starting to, at this point, organize their military tactics. And we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about Mujahideen military tactics sometime during this episode. Absolutely. So because the Mujahideen is uh, working on a, again, like we talked about last time, Masood, big avid reader of Mao, Che Guevara, people like that. So the Mujahideen, like at large, and you could even say this of like Hekmetar as well, but like are working with a style of guerrilla warfare that is intended to level the playing field between people, between two opposing factions where the difference in firepower is immense, which right. it is. Right, Hekmetar is not stupid. He is just vicious. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, so that's what we're trying to, that's the idea with, hold on, let me check. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so that's the idea with this kind of guerrilla warfare that they're using. So the Soviets are conversely during this phase trying to keep all of the combat that's happening to be very open. So this is a way in which I think that we can see similarities between the Vietnam War and the war in Afghanistan, the Soviet War, in the sense that like we have two opposing parties who are trying to make sure that the majority of combat happens within the field that is most uh, amenable to them that is easiest for them to work with because like all the Soviets want this to happen entirely in the open. They want traditional warfare. They want traditional <laughs> battlefield style warfare because they have sufficient firepower to be able to take them out. Right. The, the Soviets Mujahide win on a battlefield. Yeah. The Mujahideen conversely wants to make sure that everything is happening in a guerrilla warfare style that is going to be very amenable to them. The thing about guerrilla warfare is that it's asymmetric warfare. You know, it's not it's not war that's conducted with the idea that, you know, you put two parties on a on an empty field and let them go at each other. This is like like the entire like the entire idea of guerrilla warfare is that your opponent is trying to be in the open and you are instead trying to be rather covert with the way that you take them out. Right. Debatably, the American Revolution is one of the first major examples of guerrilla warfare mm -hmm. because the American Revolution is fought by a side that is obviously financially and militarily insufficient. Mm -hmm. against a much larger force. I mean, up until France or Spain backs the U.S. Okay, so the uh, there is a offensive in 85 called the Maiden Valley Offensive, and I'm sure uh, that Michael will talk about that at some point tonight. But this is essentially like this month, uh, April 85, is the turning point where we finally start to exit phase two and enter phase three. 
in which we enter the second of the larger phases that I talked about. So we're moving from the entry strategy into the exit strategy. At this point, the Soviets begin to operate again to some degree, a lot like the Americans wanted to operate when they were leaving Vietnam, where we are moving away from active combat with uh, nominative troops, the troops that are actually, you know, American, and moving instead to try and enter a support role because we... Be because the Soviets are ultimately hoping, after five, six years of having occupied Afghanistan at this point, they are hoping to try and leave Afghanistan with some kind of functional infrastructure so that they can take care of themselves. The idea behind the invasion of Afghanistan is not so much the uh, new puppeting of some formerly independent government, but to try and secure a nice position for what has already been, for at least two decades, a reliable Soviet ally. And to more closely integrate them with the Eastern Bloc, which was the initial hope of the Sour Revolution for the Soviets, and to some degree probably also a wild aspiration of the original coup of 73. Yeah. Like, it's to integrate this into a, like, to integrate it within the sphere of the Soviets a lot more tightly. So, again, we have a withdrawal from the region slowly, and... What the Soviets do is they try to be efficient about the way that they actually conduct military operations, so everything is going to be run on the on the basis of like intelligence work that's being done in the country. So the Soviets are trying to take a backseat to the actual like active military campaigns to support the DRA, uh, which by this point is still not actually functional. But that's their hope. And then we enter phase four, 87 to 89. This is the, so at this point, uh, the Soviets do not take any active combat either in a direct or support role, which means that the Soviets effectively do not do anything as far as active combat goes or as far as combat goes unless it's defensive. So everything from here on out is conducted in a strictly defensive manner, at least on paper. Right. And so there's also the national, there's the national reconciliation government, which we should probably talk about at some point. Uh, yeah, I was hoping that we would give a whole episode to them because they kind of deserve it. That's fine. We can, uh, that gives me um, more time to, I'll leave that to you. I'm going to focus on the Civil War afterwards. Get some nice sources for that. So 86 uh, is a significant turning point, as mentioned, right around 86, right? Because that's kind of when we're moving from the offensive to the defensive stage. Mm -hmm. um, so Gorbachev makes a statement to the Politburo. We have been fighting in Afghanistan already for six years. If our approach is not changed, we will continue to fight for another 30. Our military should be told that they are learning badly from this war. What can it be that there is no room for our general staff to maneuver? In general, we have not selected the keys to resolving our problem. What we are going to fight endlessly as a testimony that our troops are not able to deal with the situation, we need to finish this process as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Um. Anyone who, so this is uh, largely part of this turning point, right? Like we have the Politburo for the first time. Um, so starting in 78, right, is when we start hearing implications that there's going to be a Soviet war in Afghanistan from the Politburo. Like from leadership rather than just from military leadership who are usually slightly more conservative but also tend to be slightly more realistic about military engagement. Right? So in 78, you start getting the murmurs of like, well, this might be taking a little bit longer than we thought. 
have you have you considered that maybe it's not just going to be a quick in and out? It's not a quick in and out operation, no. Uh, the Politburo, so the military leader who writes that memo in 78 mm -hmm. uh, gets laughed out of the Central Committee. <laughs> they basically look at him and are like, you're a fucking moron. There's no way that this will take longer than six months. And even like, his, it's, it's, his estimate was generous. His his estimate is four years. Yeah. <laughs> so again, what we have, again, this is a case of mission creep, we would think, right? Yeah. Like that was actually my contention at the very end of the like studies on the 78 coup and the events leading up to the war is that like the Soviets are not, the Soviets are looking at a massive fucking crisis on their hands. Like an absolutely massive, uh, akin to a constitutional crisis in one of their, like, key geopolitical allies. Yeah. The mineral surveys in Afghanistan, like there is a, we should talk a little bit about the resources there, I suppose. But like, there's, there's a number of, there's a myriad of reasons that the Soviets would want to keep Afghanistan in a nice and functional state that doesn't seem to, you know ever happen yeah unfortunately yeah. i'm sure Unfor the worst part is i'm sure afghanistan is a beautiful country with fantastic people afghanistan is a beautiful country you haven't seen it i've seen very little of it mostly war-torn pictures you gotta look deeper than that what are you doing um right. and i'm sure that like i would enjoy spending time there you know minus the like harsh restrictions on alcohol but like I could get used to it, maybe. Um, again, this, this is a podcast for alcoholics. Like we've said, uh, I do not um, have any alcohol right now. Should I get some? I have a beer. Eh. So we should talk a little bit about the geography of Afghanistan, just to set the stage for the actual, like, what is the battlefield that we're looking at? Yes. So, so Afghanistan is a lot like... Again, I guess if you're familiar with the American war in Afghanistan, you should be familiar with the geography of Afghanistan, which is that Afghanistan is built... Afghanistan is built like a fortress. Yes. It is, it is notoriously... It is notoriously mountainous. The mountain range that runs from about the... Somewhere in the Farah or Gore provinces up into the... Up into the... The corridor uh it's the hindu kush mountain range and so this about evenly divides the country in half this actually becomes relevant i think during the uh civil war as well when you look at territorial control it's very evenly divided along the kush mountain range north to yes. south yeah so the soviets are going to the soviets initially start their invasion routes through about about in the northwest part of the country right around Herat. And what you'll see is that the air, the air Brigade comes just right along the mountain range and goes all the way down to Kabul, and that the mainline land routes tend to go from Herat to Farah to Kandahar and then finally into the Kabul region. So they more or less like kind of swoop down from the northwest down to the southwest and then come back around towards the very bottom of the country along the border with Pakistan to reach Kabul. Yes, uh, and it's also one of the reasons that as we will see later, uh, Masood has such a choice 
picking of Soviet technology. Because Massoud does not fight with American technology, he is the only Mujahideen leader who that is unique about. So what does he fight uh, with? He fights primarily with Soviet technology. Uh, he arms his men with Soviet gear. They wear Soviet fatigues. They carry Soviet guns. They drive Soviet tanks. Uh, there's a story in Steve Cole where years after the war, which we'll see in the 92 to 96 section, uh, Massoud is being challenged by a CIA leader on the amount of help that he was given by the CIA. Hmm. Uh, and out of 2,500 Singer missiles, Massoud gets eight of them. Nice. <laughs> um, and Massoud is like, you guys did not help me as much as you are all pretending that you did, which is undeniably true. The U.S. targets the most vicious and insane Mujahideen the ones who are absolutely willing to bulldoze a fucking city and kill every person inside. Uh, as we will hear, the ones who do things like cut out children's intestines and hang other children with them. The kind of savagery that humans can't really imagine. Um, and so Masood doesn't fall into this category yet. He does later. He gets there. But it's a build. It's a slow burn to get him there. Versus someone like Goldwood and Hekmachar, who begins there, or uh, Itihadi Islami, who begin there. Mm -hmm. um, but what he has access to is the Panjashir Valley. The Panjashir uh, Valley, for anyone who's curious, is located... Where's my map? It's about... It's a little bit northeast of Kabul, I believe. Somewhere between Kabul and Kunar. Yes, there is one highway from Moscow to Kabul. And this it goes... cuts directly through Panjashir. <laughs> right. Uh, this is where Masood gets his troops and his weapons and everything from. Uh, he makes the comment at one point that any raid we have that doesn't involve bringing back Soviet equipment is a loss. And it's interesting that uh, that this was conducted with Soviet equipment because of the... So part of the asymmetry between the Mujahideen and the Soviet Union was attributed by defense scholars at the time, and even to some degree today. I think it's more commonly a like a criticism that's made today, especially since Soviet documents have been declassified following the following the Afghan war. Yes. That the like so the Soviet Union's entire if you're if you're familiar with the history, you probably know that the Soviet Union at one point had a plan to invade the entirety of Europe. Which is not uncommon. That's a just-in-case scenario, a defensive scenario. Like, if if we are suddenly at war with all of the West, what do we do? So, a lot of the Soviet... Like, the Soviet Union was not actually prepared for a war inside the terrain of Afghanistan. And didn't seem to have their military oriented towards fighting in that terrain, and especially not fighting against guerrillas. So the Soviet no. Union is the Soviet Union's. I was going to say, like the way that you look at the Soviet Union's actually the way that they've actually the weapons they're using. A lot of RPG <laughs> launchers, a lot of like there's a lot of short range uh, focused power that's like focused to maim and not to kill. There's yeah, it's either small. It's small arms and anti aircraft. So it's a lot of suppression. Yeah. Like, and most of these, most of the weapons that they're using are actually meant to be, most of their, like, heavy firepower weapons are meant to be used in conjunction with combat vehicles, which have a really hard time uh, going over mountains. 
and working and operating in territory where you really just have to walk. Yes. So it seems like the Soviet military was actually really poised to be able to invade urban areas like uh, Europe, for example. Like it was a military that emphasized a lot on having on high speed working in urban environments. Um, it was so... particularly ill-equipped and ill-prepared for what I'm told, what is called tactically intensive guerrilla warfare. I'm about to, in a second, relay a picture of Ahmad Shah Massoud that was uh, painted in mural form on... Is one of George's? No. No. Um, so this was painted in mural form in the Panjashir Valley so that we can have a reference for what it looks like when your army is marching through Panjashir Valley. This is where they were fighting from. Uh, clearly, this is not great tank. This is actually the highway that he fought on. Yeah, that's like the flattest part of the of the of the entire landscape there. And yeah. you can see, and you can see from the from the mountains that follow on both sides that just like just like uh, Obi Wan Kenobi, they had the high ground. So, right, and they have this tactic where they will draw Soviet tanks. Mm-hmm into a small, unpaved valley on the sides. <laughs> Which is not where you want to tank. So we're clear. Tanks don't do well in small, unpaved locations. Uh, and then they would blow up the front and back tank. So you just have the middle tank? Well, it would be a, a like a, a row of tanks. Like you have the middle, the middle tanks. Yeah, but those ones can't move because it is impossible to fit two tanks through the valley pass at the same time. So what really happens is now they have zero tanks and a bunch of dudes who need to leave tanks that Masood is now taking. This was the whole core of his, like, I don't need the U.S.'s help. MI6, give me training to fight a guerrilla war. Mm-hmm. Give me the same training you had your stay-behind units take during World War II, right? Because that's what they're doing, really, is Mm -hmm. like stay-behind type warfare. Um, And then we'll just take whatever equipment we need from the enemy, which, you know, does the U.S. sit and look at it and be like, oh, that's not clean warfare. What's clean war? What's clean warfare? Well, when the U.S. uses chemical weapons in Korea, that's clean, because at least we did it from a fucking bomber, I guess. I don't know. Well, what's clean, though? That doesn't answer my question. Well, so, like, there's an idea in the U.S. citizenry's mind that Mm -hmm. this kind of guerrilla warfare tactic is, uh, you know, done by the other, right? It's done by these kind of savages like Masood. Right? Yeah, it's well. I mean, that is that is the entire idea. Is that like so? Masood has managed to take, like, with this tactic, Masood Masood manages to turn an invasion of tanks into he now has ten free tanks. That it is now added seventeen men with or seventeen rifles and thirty men. Yes, and turn that into a fully equipped twenty thousand person army, which is an incredible thing to do. Uh, does he do it? In sometimes barbaric ways, yes. But is that like kind of a theme of the Soviet-Afghan war as well? Like these people, like there are people doing things in 
sometimes atrocious ways. But like this is like this is exactly how you would expect a guerrilla war to be fought. Right, which is why the U.S. looks down on it. The U.S. would rather the U.S. would rather spend tons of money on it. I don't know. Yeah, the, the U.S. would rather crank a trillion dollars into Iraq than ever have to consider fighting a guerrilla war. Mm-hmm. Because at least you're fighting like a man or whatever the fuck and losing. It's an insane. Something about that doesn't strike me as quite right, but all right. Well, I mean, that's what they do, right? They crank a trillion dollars into Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. Um, So at this point in the war, uh, we're kind of looking at mostly international politics, right? At which point in the war? In 85? Uh, no, I was talking about the like beginning invasion still, because you were talking about the uh, yeah. mineral. Yeah, so the minerals aren't, the surveys are conducted, I think, later. I could be are wrong they? about that, though. I'm not sure, actually. I'm not sure when they're conducted, but they had been conducted. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know that they are conducted and that they are significant. Well, they're significant only in the sense that like there is a... They're only significant if you don't already believe that, like, the Soviet Union has just an interest, a geopolitical interest in keeping Afghanistan within their, like, sphere of influence as a potential long-term partner with the rest of the Eastern Bloc. If you don't believe that's the case, then you can point to the natural resources. That's fair. You know, but, like, I think that it's rather obvious that they wanted to, you know, keep Afghanistan as an ally just because the more the merrier. Right, and also, it's also, in, it's also is influ- a great location. It's in, it's an, influ- it's also, you know, it's a good way to gain some kind of foothold into Southwest Asia. Yeah, which at this time they really don't have outside of the, outside of who actually I don't even know. Uh, a tenuous relationship with China. That's south. That's the east. China is really big. It's not southwest. That's it's so. central at best. If you're talking about the other region. Really? And their foothold, well, their foot, it's not Southwest Asia. Never, no, you know, I guess I thought, of, I thought of it as like a stepping stone towards it more so than anything. Yeah, the relationship between China and the Soviet Union is a little bit more than tenuous uh, by the by the 1980s, I would, th- I would think. Yeah, at this point, it's deteriorated. It's deteriorated, yeah, just completely. <laughs> yeah, it's gone. <laughs> like, they have already fought on the opposite side of multiple wars. Yeah, um, so. and by 82, it gets worse, but we'll get there. Did you read the uh, Zabinu letter from from Zabinu to Carter? I did. Okay. What did you think about the section about the why Zabinu doesn't think this is a Soviet Vietnam? Um, hold on. Let me refresh on that. Well, I'll just read it to you. I'll just read you the, 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 the there's three, four points that he mentions. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So the guerrillas are badly organized and poorly led. They do not have any kind of like, at this point in time, which is 1979 or 1980, I think, there is not really a organized command structure for any of the Mujahideen. This is essentially just a, like, a, it is only slightly more organized than just a mass riot. So the second point being that they have no sanctuary, no organized army, and no central government, all of which the Viet Cong did. The Viet Cong had all of these things during the war in Vietnam. 
The third is that they have limited foreign support, potentially at this point in right. time, because the U.S. is not involved, no foreign support. By contrast, the Viet Cong had foreign support from the Soviet Union and from China. Uh, right. Yeah, they would at this point and only so have backing the from fourth Saudi point, Arabia and Which is Pakistan. quite intriguing and fascinating, and potentially reveals the disparity between like, in American intelligence knowledge at this time versus the reality of things, which would later come to light. Uh, Zvinyu says that the Soviets are going to do what Americans didn't, and they will act decisively. Which they really, they really do not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, that's a laughable, like, I don't know. And I the don't Soviets, have a again, like I said, the Soviets, every single step that the Soviets took for the longest time in Afghanistan seems to suggest that they were only planning on being there for another six months. Just another six months and this will be fixed. Yeah. Right. They are planning to, like the Politburo said, it's going to be a four-month war. We're going to have a four-month military engagement and we'll be out. Uh, reality does not bear that out. Uh, so one of the major decisive factors for the U.S. getting involved mm -hmm. and the U.S. kind of taking seizure over the Mujahideen um, becomes this man, Adolf Dubbs. Thank you. You did not, you did not make that Who joke to me last cells. night just so you could try and skip past it now. Uh, no, I, well, I appreciate it, but it's yours. I was, I was offering it up to you. Uh, so Adolf Dubbs uh, comes into Afghanistan as the Afghani diplomat for the United States, uh, which is a, a stressful position to be in at any given point in time. Yeah. Uh, but right around 78, it gets real dicey. <laughs> it, is, it is not necessarily the position that you want to be in. Uh, it almost seems like a punishment outpost. Um, so at this point, Pakistan has just had an uprising against the U.S. Embassy that involved the CIA developing a very close relationship with the ISI in order to break it. Uh, you've had the seizure of the Grand Mosque in Mecca uh, by, like, right-wing Mujahideen fighters, yeah. the right-wing of the Mujahideen. Okay, then. Which is All a right. really insane position to be in. <laughs> Uh, who are led by a man who is pseudo-messianic and who begins shooting at uh, people rough. who are undertaking Hajj. This is... I, I'm not, I don't want to follow this new god. Yeah. At the time, nobody in Saudi Arabia is sure who well, is backing this man. Well, like, presumably, the providence of sure heaven is he backing might him be one if of he's theirs. the messiah. Well, that's well, a yeah. But he blessing. also shows up with six hundred. Legend AKs. has it that there were only two AKs before he uh, <laughs> distributed them to his army. <laughs> yeah, fucking the loaves and fish man over here with AK forty sevens coming out of fake coffins. Um, <laughs> there were two dead people, and he turned them into six hundred AK forty seven. He lives. <laughs> um. So Dubs is Dubs is dropped into this in an embassy in a country that is 
on one side hostile to U.S. interests because they are hardline Islamists, and on the other side hostile to U.S. interests because they are allied with the Soviets. Uh, and so he is he supposed to make this work. Okay, very nice. Job, he gets job well done. By Shia militants. Uh, he does. <laughs> well, so it was kind of. Uh, that becomes a galvanizing point for the it's U.S. Like a, government. It's like a Passover lamb. All right. Uh, the U.S. government. Yeah, he becomes the sacrificial lamb. Uh, the U.S. government's like, well, we're not going to let the Bush kill our men anymore. We're not just going to let the Mujahideen soldiers come and you just think gun been a, down a sort U.S. Of diplomats. So we're going to take control wrong, of the Mujahideen. But... So, you know, if I had been in yeah, charge, well, I, I think I would have opposed yeah, that a lot more yeah. you know, strongly while it was happening. Yeah, that seems like a bad... I, you know, I for one, am anti-my diplomats getting murdered. bad strategy of appeasement. <laughs> um, so the U.S. sets up with the ISI, who we are now friendly with because they saved a bunch of CIA agents and some diplomats... <laughs> Uh, over in Pakistan from another uprising. It is the first U.S. soldier killed under Jimmy Carter. And what year is this? Uh, the U.S. Embassy in Pakistan okay. gets attacked. Carter had a good two years. 78. So right as this man is getting you see put in charge of the Afghan, <laughs> Afghan embassy, first the U.S. Of soldier the killed administration. in Pakistan fucking miles away. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, so these guys are the first two. So we become friends with the ISI because they did a really good job of getting CIA agents mm -hmm. and diplomats out of the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad. Uh, we start training the ISI, and the ISI is like, hey, so how about we stop that's you from getting killed idea. by Mujahideen soldiers? And the U.S. government's like, that sounds sick. That is that is the coolest thing I've ever heard one of you say. Uh, and so they open some training centers up in Pakistan, right along the Afghan border. Uh, the most notable being Peshawar, which, of course, is where all of the Mujahideen are based out of. But you don't want all of your like random dipshit number twelve frontline bullet sinks to be like right. Also training alongside your leadership, right? So they disperse it, um, and then by 1980, the U.S. government calls for a formal boycott no, of Moscow's Olympics. Which, yeah, I mean, it sounds insignificant, but it is a major international relations blow, right? Like, you don't boycott other nations' Olympics. That's Yeah, it's... Especially uh, as the United States. Like, we're I've always been confused about that. Like, what, what made them think it was a good idea? No, please. <laughs> yeah, like, what... what <laughs> the 1980... The U.S. boycotting is an, the Olympics? It is an openly hostile thing to do. Um, so 
1980 is a big year for the U.S. doing openly hostile things to the Soviet-backed Afghan government. Uh, right around the same time they call for this boycott, we also have the Interparliamentary Congress, which is 85 nations whose representatives come together to discuss international issues, right? Uh, the U.S. government, along with 40 other countries who are all backed by the U.S., declare that they will not engage with the Afghani parliament. Mm -hmm. Unless they have a re-vote and a re-election. The Soviet Union, of course, opposes this because it's, first of all, an insane thing to do. Uh, and second of all, the Soviet Union says that they yes. have no right to meddle in another country's democratic elections. <laughs> Thank you, Ignore Bob Brezhnev, Rock for Come that <laughs> little nugget of wisdom. <laughs> Bob Rock Carmel is sitting there and being like, yeah, you have to respect our elected parliament. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs> But of course, like, Carmel has debatably more of a claim than whatever U.S.-backed nonsense well, would be yeah, put the, in. The, At the, least well, the, the PDPA won, won a revolution. The Kalki won the revolution. Right? The Parchamis watched. The Parchamis helped with the other guy, Dawood yeah, Khan. Well. That, was their, that was their boy. So. Right, but either way, they've they've like at least participated in it, and debatably, the Parshamis have the bloodless one, which means more yeah, support. Bloodless. That that was your. I mean, whole, I didn't. I wouldn't have said that a bloodless coup means more popular support. <laughs> maybe even the opposite. The people want blood. Like a bloodless coup actually conversely suggests that it was probably, probably like inside shenanigans. It was inside the Beltway or whatever the. Afghani version of that is and that's what it was it was like one it was one royal family member taking power from another who doesn't even get killed and now his kid lives in Arlington which is still the worst punishment out of this Like if someone told you that they were going to wait does until he ever think you about does he, does he, is he a pretender? Do you think in Arlington, like, Virginia? If if I look up, <laughs> like I is mean, he the Savoy? Is he the Savoy Instabaddy? You know, is no. he a pretender though? There's plenty of like the the guy who's the pretender to the Napoleonic line of French succession has made a career out of it. By which I mean me. Uh, no. Also, why does the why does the Italian well, no, pretender just, like, not? Why does the, she have to have I feel a like real we're on career? She's an instabaddy. I'm just asking. I'm just. No, I just don't. I just don't understand why it's fair. Why there are certain royal families where you because can like make a career out of being a pretender. It's like they're royals. They don't know how to do real work. They can't have real jobs. That's she's the exception. No one's clamoring for the return of the Savoys. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking the difference between that's, the napoleonic line true. the bonapartists <laughs> and the savoys is so fucking vast so absolutely vast you have no you italians have no idea how good the world used to have it 
That's true. The, the Orleanists are still the or, there. The, the Orleanists artists, line And there's also there. the Bourbons. They, have, they all have successors. They all have pretenders. The Savoy Instabed. Savoy just has Vittoria. For those who can't tell what we're talking about, the Vittoria uh, di Savoy. Uh, the one Savoy of the potential queens of Italy is currently a baddie on Instagram named Vittoria di Savoy. She is actually de facto the queen of Italy. The, like her Italy father not, has named oh, she's her the de facto the queen of Italy. Is there like is? Are you telling me that there's some like kind of yeah. kind of like weird constitutional thing where like they technically still have a monarchy but no one ever recognizes it? Like the Italians just don't get around to updating the constitution? No, so there are uh <laughs> <laughs> in news that surprises nobody. <laughs> noble and what So sense? there are still noble families in Italy. Do they Noble own, do they like still own the, land? the lineage to the nobility and okay. so are it's still, declared? I guess it's nominatively their nobles. Yes. Oh, the state. And are so they're, they're actually like nobility with the in state terms in of the sense. state. Okay. Yeah. Except for the Savoy pretenders and the other pretenders who are the cousins of one of the Savoys. So they have like no real claim, except that they claim that it's right male now preference. it's not a patrilineal line. Or is it just direct primogeniture? Okay. So now we have the instabetti. Um, okay. It's direct primogeniture. We should get back right on track now. real quick. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we should. Um, so what we end up with the is Olympics. the U.S. boycotts the election or the. Uh, Olympics, and then also boycotts the Afghani elected parliament, yeah. who are well, debatably the, so the US only boycotts elected people them. I don't, in this The U.S. was not narrative. invited to participate in the parliament, so their boycotting them is not actually relevant. <laughs> oh, the interparliamentary. Okay, I see. No, I thought but that was a the weird, interparliamentary... I thought that was a weird turn of phrase on your part, yeah. Like, they are just... No, they are just declaring that the Afghani parliament in the or last, the only like, elected decade, officials you know? in Afghanistan are not. Yeah. <laughs> right. The only people to not seize power by killing or removing another person are the only people who are apparently not to be listened to, which is an incredible stance. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I like it. Very brave to take it. <laughs> uh, very insane. So by 1980 in September, the U.S. is cranking out Mujahideen fighters. Uh, we have a bunch of bases. What is Q doing? I have no idea what Q Put is doing right now. No, you took it away. <laughs> Put it back. Can you not see it? Um, we stole his. We we stole his woodworking <laughs> stream, so he doesn't even. <laughs> Q is just so. Q is well. Yeah, we've been on for like about right forty-five minutes, and he still hasn't actually noticed <laughs> that we've taken over the stream. So he doesn't. He's not very good at engaging with his audience. It seems like. Yeah. Wait. So he is. Well, like he was already offline, offline right Q, now. Like he had ended his stream. Yeah. Well, he is online right but now. He wasn't, but he wasn't. He wasn't streaming at the time. We're on. He's just a source. Yeah, just put him, um, take him away. I'll get him out of here. Correct. 
So the uh, U.S. government sets up all of these bases um, where, like, the main idea is that you spend some months training in Pakistan under a combination mm -hmm. of Pakistani, Saudi, Egyptian, and American intel, right? Uh, and you do that, and then the best of those get shipped off to Texas or California okay. where they learn like to fight in the mountains and the desert. Which, like, ma makes sense as a region. To yeah, they're the, two, they're the two most annoying states in the country, so. I. You don't. I would have thrown them wanna, all in Nevada. Let the Mormons get to them? Or Utah. Maybe Mormons and Salafis would get along. You know, like, you could show up in Afghanistan they 10 years later and did. discover a giant, like, YFZ ranch kind of place. I feel like war, like you know, they would they would listen to the prophet Warren, Warren Jeffs, who we need to do an episode about at some point. Like that would be a nice little like week at weekend stream. Well, so at like this point, the, the religious States. right are like hard. The evangelicals are backing Salafists. It's it's the unity that we always yeah. want to see. We've always we've been waiting for this like joke forever. Yes. Atheists love to like Reddit atheists love to make it all the time, but, and so do liberals. Like the unity between like the Bible Belt and the Taliban, effectively. Yeah. Right. Like, really, it's the group that will become Christian Dominionists in like eight to ten years. But like mm -hmm. Christian Dominionism as like a formalized thing doesn't exist at all yet. Uh, we are just now entering the Reagan coalition, right? Uh, so the Reagan coalition becomes significant here because the Christian right really, really loves the Mujahideen. Uh, the Reagan coalition is mm -hmm. neocons who are new, right? They've never existed before. Uh, who are finally getting power because of HW and a couple other people in the Reagan administration, Irving Kristol, uh, Norman Pudretz, uh, Kissinger famously. To so them, the traditionalists, who are a dying breed, that's your old right. They oppose the war in Afghanistan because they oppose the U.S. going to war anywhere. Uh, because I don't know a single Afghani, and so why would I want to be involved with them? Which, honestly, if conservatives went back to that, we would all be better off. Like, if conservatives would just return to the idea of, like, I'm a hardline American ist and will not leave america cool you know the you know cost what? of living in europe is like not so as, much better than like i can going tolerate down in neocon. the us so they can have america that's fine i'm out let's go live in europe michael yeah we're moving to sardinia hayes and i already have plans to move to a foreign country yes franco-italianism yeah where we will be able to return. speak both french and italian <laughs> um so then we have the like broad anti-communist clique uh who are like slowly forming up between the trads and the neocons for the trads they're like the old big business clique that don't want the u.s involved in wars because they want to be able to war profiteer on both sides uh, and for the neocon clique, it's uh, one of the groups that is involved in Reagan's advisory panel 
uh, is like kind of led by them. It's the dude who owns. Oh, here we go. Uh, fucking uh, Soldier of Fortune. Yeah. 19. Yeah. Oh, we haven't. You've told him. You've told he me about him so many times show. in private that I completely assumed. Well. Yeah, because here's he, the big reveal. Because he has not impacted the war yet. Yeah, so the Soldier of Fortune magazine owner is on Reagan's advisory panel for the war in Afghanistan. Uh, he is at odds with almost every military agency imaginable because he is always in favor of cranking up war. Uh, the actual CIA, who understand mm -hmm. that like so CIA agents die during wars, during On average, during CIA agents time, don't, don't die. die. If there's no war... Yeah, if there's not a war going on... At this point, the KGB and the CIA have a tacit understanding. That, like, if we catch one of your men or you catch one of our men, we don't torture them. We don't really interrogate them too hard. You know, if they roll really quickly for us, that's convenient. Like, if we can do some, like, scary mm -hmm. faces and threaten them for a second and they just give up, like, cool, that's on them. <laughs> but if we interrogate but them too hard, if we start getting a reputation for Yeah, they're going to torture us. Like, there's a, it's a weird... All of a sudden, that, go, that cuts both thing. ways. Yeah. Uh, so the owner of Soldier of All Fortune right, Michael, magazine make your pitch. proposes Let's hear it. this idea for Afghanistan... <laughs> Where if the CIA finds a KGB agent, they drag him into the street and shoot him in front of everyone. Okay, so that's the uh, that's the hook. What's the what's the chaser? What do we got? <laughs> well, what? No, like the, uh, the, hold on. The like, CIA so, is so you, very so opposed the, to this the idea. The pitch is that you find a KGB agent, you shoot him in the middle of the street in front of everyone. And so what what have we accomplished? What happens now? Yes. We, of course. we scared the KGB. It's an excellent idea. <laughs> uh, the CIA hates this idea because the CIA is sitting there and being like, so uh, we have a kind of like non-formal detente going with the where uh, we don't shoot them in the street and they don't shoot us in the street. Yeah, because you, you can, know, it's, you can it's do sick. May the Best it's, it's Espionage Agent us. win at that point. Right, they get to play like formal espionage games and do their like spycraft shit. It's like without, James Bond, like, but there's no laser the machines. There's just of, lots like, of foreign bought, pussy. That's the idea, right? There you go. Yeah. Perfect. We're on board. Yeah, kind of. Uh, so the CIA hates this idea. Uh, the military is not super keen on it because they have their own spies running around, as we all know. Like, the DIA is also there. So the DIA is like, mm, probably not. We, we don't love this much either. This sounds bad for everyone involved, except for the dude who runs Soldier of Fortune, who is going to profit immensely. <laughs> <laughs> uh it's so it's like oh so they're on the board too Lockheed they're 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 they're, they're for the, the the slaughter of the kgb agents oh, yeah. entirely 
Uh, Steve Cole like makes the comment in his book that at one point during one of these, uh, the what CIA is what was his take for Kabul is present, and. The CIA station chief for Kabul, they start suggesting just flying U.S. military planes into Afghanistan. What's the pitch open- there? Okay. So what's this idea? Where's this idea coming from? <laughs> well, so one of them makes the comment, like a DOD guy sits there and he's like, hey, by the way, uh, if a U.S. plane ah. gets shot down, we are obligated to go to war. What you are proposing, what you are proposing is World War Three. And the owner of Soldier Fortune magazine sat, smiled and said, <laughs> World War Three, that doesn't sound so bad. Uh, at which point the CIA station chief in Kabul said, you're absolutely insane. We're not doing that. Because, again, the CIA does not want to lose CIA agents constantly. They're expensive to train and costly to maintain. Uh, so they come up with this compromise, which is they open a CIA okay. front. So they open a airline, front organization. Civilian airline. Got it. Yeah. That so the compromise is to fund the Mooj. Military supplies to Afghanistan. Oh, we're not there yet. Well, the compromise is to fund the CIA. But the CIA now has a physical presence within Afghanistan to... In back channels. Which is intended for support of the Mooch, for gathering of intelligence, for both. Gotcha. Bingo. Both. Uh, So they have these planes that are like kitted out with recording devices because by all appearances this is a surely the soviets know better by this point though right airline right uh yeah i'm sure the soviets aren't putting i'm sure afghan diplomats know better at this point as well like this is a so this front airline was like like incorporated after the war had begun uh no, it's incorporated just as Still, the war is that's beginning, a but little, it's done through Like, when you can tell civilian. that war is inevitable, you know, who's going to go around and say, you know what I think, like, would be a really nice venture is, like, trying, is getting, uh, you know, getting stuff into the sky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, Peter Thiel, have you considered like that's, a new Ukrainian airlines venture? Because we might actually, because as far as Ukraine goes, this might just be the beginning of the war. We don't know. That's there's yeah still plenty of time to start a yeah, Ukrainian airline, which again, yeah, get stuff in the airspace during the middle of a <laughs> of of like what is again because the Soviet Afghan war is kind of like the Ukrainian Russian war in that like as far as war started by uh, countries not called the United States, like it is like one of the major news stories of the like back half of the twentieth century. As is this Ukraine war, one of the great stories of the front half yeah. of the 21st century. Like this is front half of the 21st, yeah. So one of the things that's unique about this airline, uh, what's it and called? One of the reasons that Afghani diplomats are kind of obligated to fly it. Uh, Afghan, Af- 
Paprakami? Oh, it's A-P-R-A-K-M-I, I believe. Something like that. Let me double check the name. I can't wait to cut uh, this section. This book. Um, Afghan yeah, no, this section Air needs Vine. to go. Air America? No. That's a different. No, that's a that's a different one. Uh, so Air America is significant for it, uh, but they also operate in Afghanistan. But there is one that they continue operating even after the war ends. Um, you were really struggling to find this. Ooh, where is it? Yeah, I thought I marked the page and I didn't, okay? Um, okay, there we go. So, uh, Michael, what was uh, the, uh, what was this Afghan airline called, by the way? From where it actually was. <laughs> um, All right, we'll so, start that again. Hold on. Do, 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 Let me know when you have it. an advisor to Kabul. So, Michael, what was that airline called again? Ah, here it Ariana is. Ariana Afghan. So this was the CIA front airline. Ariana Afghan. Uh, yes. Yeah. So Ariana Afghan flies all the way through the 90s. Uh, they are used to deliver via C-130, which is an exclusively military mm-hmm. plane. But once you have a legitimate airline set up, right, it all of a sudden becomes a lot more reasonable to operate a military plane founded in 1955 ariana is the oldest airline in the country and is state-owned okay so it's like taken over by uh, ariana is definitely a cia airline at uh, one yeah because they are using it so in a meeting in 1982 mm-hmm. they use it to fly uh supplies into masood via c-130 um, which, like, they didn't just let the CIA rip out passenger seats. Well, who is the state right now, anyway? The airline, I assume. Like, just, like, what is the uh, state In the 19, early 1980s? Point, you know? Like, oversight in... <laughs> o- state oversight of these kinds of enterprises is, I assume, a little bit nerfed at the moment. I probably, probably, probably not. The highest priority. We'll be honest. They've probably they've got bigger fish to fry. (laughs) But it looks like this is not a a front org in the same way that you know Radio Free Europe or or what's the other one we were talking about in uh, Air America. Um. Okay, so I found it. Uh, They pay off some middle manager. 
who seems like irrelevant mm-hmm. other than the fact that he is on the U.S.'s payroll and lets these planes fly in. So, yeah. So again, like so the CIA is like of sort of, of using like this oversight organization thing. as a front org, although it's not one that is directly under their control. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yes. Um, which lets them bring in uh, something interesting in September 1980, which I brought up to you earlier. So the U.S. has for a long time denied ever nice. violating the Geneva Conventions. Uh, in 1980, the U.S. government provides a distribution of 4,000 chemical grenades, according to Soviet sources, for well, the, the, so- Mujahideen. The, the Mujahideen can break the Geneva Conventions all they want. They're not a legitimate now, state, you know, state army, state military. To the... the flip side of that well, is the U.S. government actively providing doesn't chemical seem weapons to is a huge Come issue. back to haunt them at all, so. Yeah, it, it inexplicably gets, like, lost in the shuffle, right? The Afghan war is so big and so overwhelming. Um, even for, like, professional researchers, right? Which we are not. But we are much more willing to come through like... I read a 65-page agricultural report. I'm not even sure if we're going to get to it. Probably not. It's not that relevant, to be honest. But we'll get there. We'll see. We are. But it's it's about about crops, too. I think it is important. I think that's important to me. All right. So where were we? So the U.S. is dropping off chemical weapons, uh, unofficially, of course. Uh, We are flying Air America routes into Saudi Arabia, into Egypt, and then using the Afghan National Air Service through, like, fake flights organized via this middle manager. Because the CIA never really needs to take the top level, right? Don't That's do like work you don't have thing. to. You don't need to take. The you just CEO need. You company. just. You need a. You need air. You need air in and out of Afghanistan, right? It's, so you can find it. For anyone who listened to Hayes and I when we talked about P two, P two never took the editor in chief of newspapers. What they did was they created friendly journalists and friendly middle level editors. And well, then at that we point, you do have at that point you do have like top level control, right? And so, right, but until you have the ability to just buy it outright, why wouldn't you just seems use to have, a couple it friendly seems journalists to have the same effect, and it's a little bit less traceable? But yeah, it's probably there's probably there's probably more liability because I assume the friendly journalists, friendly editors uh, don't have yeah. as much at stake as you know keeping the operation clandestine. But it it's weird. It's a weird weighing of incentives. But as, as, as long as everybody has something to lose by it being exposed. But you have more links, more liability. Kind of insulated. There's every every time that you have someone like that, you have a non-zero chance that they show their ass. So that's that's the only issue I could think of is like having a few editors, a few right. journalists, as opposed to just one guy at the top. But he can't make all the decisions himself, so. 
and the issue with the, the issue with the state-run enterprise is yeah, that's pretty much a government position. Now, when you're in a civil when you're in a civil war, those mid-level managers become a lot more accessible because civil implies that there are people true. on both sides who are in support. Find some simps with a simp with a Y. Yeah. So, by 80, we're bringing chemical weapons, uh, which the Mojahedin are using fairly liberally. Uh, again, we are talking about some of the more vicious Mujahideen here. Uh, there is a whole scale of Mujahideen fighters, ranging from, like, nationalists all the way through, like, you know, on the far right, people who believe that they should solely be in charge of the country of Afghanistan and enforce with an iron fist. Uh, and then kind of in the middle, you have most of the Islamist groups who support and some degree of like traditional Sharia law. Um, the U.S. very rarely supports the ones in the middle or the ones who are just nationalists. Uh, almost 80% of our support goes to the extreme, extreme you want far the, right. You want the heavy hitters. <laughs> None of this pussy and Masood crap. You want the, you want the intestines. Yeah. So, uh, in, right. In 3031B, the U S government specifically outlines that they would rather you be anti-communist and anti-democratic than Democratic like anti-communism is probably the, the, the biggest in, in, incentivizing factor for this in, getting U.S. support, which makes sense. Absolutely. They would much rather you be anti-communist and the most vicious, sadistic motherfucker they can find than you be pretty democratic. Yeah, because well, pretty democratic people might turn into communists if the vote power. goes the right way. Right. Um, so when we're giving chemical weapons, we know exactly who those are going to. It is not two people who are going to be using it on Soviet troops. Uh, and in fact, very quickly, the U.S. government begins to take some interesting stances. Uh, Bill Colby signs off on the CIA giving out sniper rifles and anti-materiel rifles to... Okay, that's the, the. I mean, that's pretty par for the course. What's next? So, what's unique about it is that uh, he specifically tells the CIA agents on the ground while shuffling CIA agents around because the original head of the Thank East you. Asian or uh, not East Asian Central Asian Affairs uh, is anti the use of attacks on civilians and he is anti-assassinations of soviet officials you know for understandable international yeah, diplomatic reasons that, that like a cia agent would be concerned about yeah yes he is still a guy trying to do a job and like most people trying to do a job he does not want more paperwork uh bill colby however doesn't really have to deal with any paperwork except what's put on his desk because he is the DCI. 
like director of central intelligence is really just a job where you get to carry out whatever you want and everyone has to listen to you. So he shuffles people around until he can get people there. Uh, at one point, they relocate Turkey during Gladio from Central Asia to Europe uh, because the director of European Central Intelligence was more willing to All you Turks to in the comments, did you just hear? You've been declared European uh, by the CIA. DC. Congratulations. Good luck getting to the Union. Uh, yeah, well... Okay, I'm just... No, I'm saying good luck. They have a pretty decent chance right now. Well, they're going to bump out... Uh, I don't know. Greece, probably. <laughs> Greece is now part of uh, Central they're gonna Asia. Greece, they're going to leave Greece on their own. <laughs> <laughs> Greece, I don't know. Greece I don't know if the DCI wants. I don't know if he wants to deal with Greece either. Unit of the DCI and uh... no, they're part of GIPS. Remember that they got to be their own. That's their own. They deserve their own um, director of intelligence. Yeah, director of lack of intelligence. <laughs> yeah, it's just Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's actually me and Hayes. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. We're gonna. So, we're working on getting France into it. Okay, okay. We're going to get France and Algeria and... and... Then just drop Portugal. And then you're going to get uh, <laughs> Turkey into it. So it's so it's France, Algeria, uh, Greece, <laughs> Germany, Oman, Greece. Turkey, Nigeria, <laughs> Turkey, <laughs> Ireland, uh, you know. Okay, so, and, and so on, and so on. All right. Gibraltar. Yeah, you get, you get the joke. Okay. But anyways. Yeah, yeah, you get the idea. Um, that's going in. The, that's going in. Keep it. But. Uh, no, come on. Include the first. Include, include the first package, country. But we're not going to include the second part. And then just say no. Yeah, okay. Where were we? Yeah, that's fine. Um, so. The. DCI uh, starts shuffling people around to find some of the guys who were in Vietnam and some of the guys who were in Latin America and some of the guys who were in Italy. And they're like, ah, you guys seem like you would be well-equipped for funding the Mujahideen. The A-team. You guys are the war crimes experts. The war you're the, crimes you're A-team. The real, the real experts in this. <laughs> so they grab like Mitchell, like Mitchell Verbell gets shipped off to Afghanistan. <laughs> Which, uh, Anytime Mitchell Ver- if Mitchell Verbell shows up in your country between 1960 and 1990, get out of there. Go somewhere else. You should just anticipate. Go somewhere he's already been. It can't happen. get any worse, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> Cambodia in the 70s. Right. Head to Cambodia. To he already did his damage. It's popping, popping off in Phnom Penh in 78. <laughs> um. So. He goes and reshuffles and gets some of the like real A team of war criminals present in Afghanistan. Uh, make sure that everybody really knows. Here's what a list role of war is. crimes. You guys are here to do bad things, and then specifically tells CIA agents that when they mention anti-materiel rifles, they should not ever use the word assassination. <laughs> 
Because so what assassinations are, we doing? are an are a crime. They are an international crime. I see. So they're we're cleaners. using them to they take out the treads of material. That's the idea. Yeah. Uh, he then tells all of the CIA agents very clearly that he wants to, and I quote, see Soviet like generals dominance. fall in a line. Yeah. Uh, which makes the don't mention assassinations job maybe even pointless at that point. A lot more I don't complicated. Know. <laughs> so what they start doing is sending people like Charlie Wilson over. Charlie Wilson goes to Afghanistan, and one of the things he notices that he can't believe, and he mentions it on the Senate floor, you're not going to believe this. There are Soviet generals just walking around in their apartments in front of the window. Well, and he wants to shoot them? They're just hanging, the Soviet generals well, are just hanging out. Well, he doesn't say that. Big party, you know, big what party in Kabul. <laughs> what he does say is, there are Soviet generals walking in front of their windows, wide open in broad daylight. No. Can you believe that? That's insane. <laughs> I mean, no. Well, they're right. Why would they assume yeah. that they are safe in their own home? Uh, that's I get I get that part, but yeah. So, well, that kind of sounds like Charlie. They also Wilson's start giving bit, classic uh, explosives. Maybe not out. Just surprised at the lack of like security, but like also the lack of like. So, so this is this is an invading country. The Soviet Union is an invading country, into Afghanistan. That is, a, that is probably the objective truth, although I'm sure some red peppers would probably find some yes. reason to disagree with me on that. But at the same time, but at the same time, Sud is not Sud on gonna, the podcast. Be That's fine. <laughs> I, whatever Lorenz has to say is not relevant to me right now. But, it, but regardless, it's like, so this was also the contention of the United <laughs> States at the time. Remember that this is the point where they believe that this is a, like, you know, long-term strategy, like 19th century uh, Eurasian Mongol schemer trick to get to the Indian Ocean. So, so, so the idea that like right. maybe Joseph the people Joseph in Kabul, like just regular Afghanis, who leader. are prob who would necessarily be really pissed about a country invading them, just didn't manage to like say, hey, there's the guy, there's a general for the army that's currently invading my country right in front of his window. So why don't they do anything? I think is probably the idea here as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, at least to some extent, like that should have been the conclusion. I think is that like if a Soviet general can like just hang out in his apartment in Kabul with the windows open and not fear for his life, then that probably says something about the relationship between the Afghani's and between the Soviet army that we don't really have, that we don't really know yet. Then that could be many things. Well. And especially with the Kabul citizenry being they, urban, generally so more sense, supportive of the Soviet Union. Yeah, they are generally more pro-Soviet. Let's, let's uh, hear it. Bill Colby, you of know how course, much I love manages it. to put a racist spin on this. Uh, Bill, Colby, Bill Colby responds by saying that we'll 
and I quote, strap plastic explosives. Well, he meant the cigarettes, panels. obviously. Because there's lots of combustion there, you know? Yeah, I'm sure that's exactly what he meant. <laughs> uh, he says that we will strap plastic explosives to their camels. We will strap plastic explosives to their rickshaws. And we will make sure that we destroy every inch of their country. So this is not to. a humanitarian mission, I take it. Well, I don't think anybody here like, certainly in the does not 21st century sees that either, but I just wanted to clarify that that was the, you know. So this is not, I guess there's not like, yeah, there's not really a case for helping the Afghan well, people Well, Bill Colby here. in particular at you the destroy time the is more honest. <laughs> no, Bill Colby is wow. very set on destroying this whole That's country pretty petty. we can't have it. That's some ex-girlfriend shit right there. Yeah, he's going to take their ball and go home. Yeah, he's taking the ball and going home. And the ball is the life of every person in Afghanistan. All right, so speaking about the support of the urban population on the Soviet invasion, we should probably... I was going to touch really quick before I forget, or before I lose the time, just quickly about the... We had talked last time about the series of land reforms that Taraki had instituted during the DRA and the opposition to them. So I wanted to... Take a quick look at the, first of all, the economic impact yes. of the war on Afghanistan, which was mostly, this was a study done by 83, it looks like, or was it earlier? Maybe, maybe it was later, like 88, 88, but like it, 83 no, sounds right for the I, first one, maybe, or it begins in 83. Yeah, so we had talked earlier about the fact that, like, the failure of, like, the lack of proper proletarianization of the Afghani farmers, the existing, like, quasi-feudal system that was still present in the country at the time, and opposition to these early efforts at commercialization were probably factors in the fact that, like, support for the Mujahideen as opposed to, like, the communist... Uh, revolutionaries of the communist government was probably within the material interests of a lot of the people who were working on these uh, farms. Or at least imagined to be. Because the reforms were just, like, not yes. the right thing at the right time. Well, so one of the problems that, one of the problems especially not for the land reforms was been. the, yeah. was that we had an existing system of, like, credit, like land tenure style credit for these farms that is obviously abolished following the communist revolution and that also just sort of like is never sufficiently replaced uh i had some figures i don't think i'm going to end up showing them i don't i just don't think they're that relevant uh, if i have them anywhere here what the hell okay some of them are missing but that's fine uh i have some figures here about failure to crop which indicates that yeah, so the study that I read came from uh, the Swedish Committee on Afghanistan. It was eventually published by USAID. So it indicates that there are probably two, count of two actual, like, groups of landowners, farmers inside Afghanistan at the time that can be pretty evenly split between people who ended up becoming refugees in the year 1987 and who ended up staying within the country for longer. If we remember correctly, 87, I think, falls at the the kind of border between phase three and phase four. So the Soviets are moving away from active combat and eventually by this time are also yes. 
like moving into the point where they are strictly defensive. Afghanistan will have to fend for itself. It very clearly doesn't do very well. But there are effectively two groups of people, the people who are refugee farmers, who that those are farmers that end up becoming refugees, and then there are farmers who end up staying. The ones who end up leaving are a significantly smaller portion of the population, but they are also significant in the sense that, like, across the board, you can see that there is a difference in in the kinds of farms they are leading and the kinds of, like, businesses they are running. They are effectively like a very, like a, like a proto-Kulak almost, you know? Like, it's it's not fair to call these farms entirely commercialized, entirely, like, entirely worked into, like, a capitalist framework of land tenure and farming, but they are wealthier landowners. So it, these they are the are landowners that are landowners hiring most of the hired labor as opposed to using almost exclusively family labor. These are the farms that disappear almost entirely by 1987. Uh... Like, the share of farmers who did not crop in the year 86 is between it's between 1% and 3% for each region, except for the Northwest, where it jumps to 13%. For the farmers who did leave, the average is probably about 15 to 16 It jumps to the highest in the Southeast, where it is 30%. 30% of landowners in the year 86 did not crop at all. They were also were the you know ones who were least likely to buy fertilizer. They were already planning an exit strategy by this time. The only reason I bring all these statistics up is because it's a little bit more. Just to, I wanted to bring a little bit more relevant data to the to what we talked about last time with the very early of the the earliest of the early commercialization of these of these pieces of land by this time. This I think is it like this is only again gotten. Right. Again, the, the the failure to properly industrialize Afghanistan has only gotten worse as time goes on. The country is only more backward in appearance and in effect than it has ever been. Um, and what we will see ultimately is that mm-hmm. a lot of these wars like have like again, you, you, I'm sure you've seen the footage part. of Afghanistan in the 70s where they had a robust um, film industry as well, robust. They used to have a really... University of Kabul was once an incredibly incredibly impressive university for such an underdeveloped country. A center of scholarship. It is... Uh, I, was, I was watching with horror as the Taliban retook power just because I was wondering what exactly is going to happen to a place like this in the midst of a resurgence of Islamic fundamentalism. What is potentially... What is potentially surprising, or perhaps not, is that the uh, and is that women are still allowed to attend, and the curriculum has mostly remained unchanged. I suppose they think it's just too. It's like a that would be a good episode idea in the future. Is like the to take a take a look at the remodernization of the Taliban. Well, and I suppose part of it has to do with them having realized that a lot of their reforms, right? Because we. Like it is important to in a, in a sense the they have Taliban some crazy ideas about what reforms should be put into place, but yeah, that is effectively what they are. Yeah, right. We disagree with them, but that does not make them not seeking reforms. Um, and especially like the right wing of the Muj that develops into the Taliban, mm-hmm. because those two groups are not that, really okay. separated. Um. Well, as we will see later, like the future leaders of the Taliban uh, include Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, 
Um, he is the only member of the Peshawar 7 the to not Reconcil agree to So the, the National Reconciliation Government was government. A, the, the advent and immediately, of the right? Uh, no. So in 92, when the Mujahideen fully take over, okay. uh, he still opposes it's the It's not government. radical enough for him. Um, right. He is mad because it is not what he wanted. Uh, so by, by 87, like you have a lot of these Mujahideen groups, at least softening their mm -hmm. struggle. Like the warfare continues until 92. Uh, but a lot of them are at least willing to enter talks with the later government. Um, Gobuddin Hekmatyar, 0% of the time is. Uh, Itihadi Islami, 0% of the time is. Uh, and that's at least partially because uh, Hizbi Wadat, who are the uh, Shia sect, who are backed by Tehran, uh, are willing to deal with the new government. Uh, one of the first things that happens in 92, like literally before there's even a government set up, Itihad and Hizbi Wadat go to war with each other. And by go to war with each other, I mean Itihadi Islami opens fire on Hizbi Wadat while they are in a council chamber, uh, which is an insane fucking thing to do at any point in time. But like when your country has just been at war for a fucking decade, two decades almost, the last thing any fucking human being wants mm -hmm. is for you to start shooting at someone. Uh, the Mujahideen do a great job of losing the support that they gain for themselves in the early days of the war. Whether it is by the use of U.S. chemical grenades, whether it is by... Uh, so Masood manages to maintain most of his support exclusively because he focuses on keeping fighting away from civilians. Admiral Gull. He'll fight you on the highway, right? He'll fight you on the highway. Why don't we fight on the highway where no one is? Does it suck for his men? Yeah. But it doesn't suck for the country as a whole. Uh, as a result, the country goes from between 82 and 88 or 82 to 92, really. About 3.5 uh, million people of the country is just destroyed. lost from the population. From 70, from 70, yeah, from 79 to 82. Yeah, or that displaced. Happens. Some are displaced. displaced. The population dips by that number. Um, the war from uh, 92 to 96... The country goes from just under 30% destroyed to just over 70% destroyed. In the space in the space of what? In a Wait, what what's what? the time frame again? Go 40 ahead. 40% of the time frame? That's 4 years. 92 to 96. Yeah. Yeah, 40% of the time frame of the entire Soviet Afghan war. Uh, the country has more than doubled the amount of land that is just raised to the ground. Um, what happened in Afghanistan, I think we'll from get to 79 that. to, um, you could pick whatever cutoff date you want, 1996, 2001, 2021, constitutes possibly the greatest humanitarian crisis of the 20th century. 
It, it's 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 one of it has to be one of them. It is. It is. And there is no. It's like, an there, atrocity. There, there are effectively no parties that come out looking like heroes or like good people. As far as the major political actors go, the Mujahideen, right, Masood or Hemkichar or or Brezhnev Ms. or Carter or Reagan or or yeah, right. The guys who look good now by the end of this story do not look good. The guys who look very bad now by the end of the story only look worse. Uh, there's nobody who like seems to have a redemption arc. We're not promising you that we can't. It is. Uh, it would be incredibly dishonest of us to do that. One of the most beautiful countries on the planet, having been absolutely destroyed, is fucking appalling. It's a really, it's it's a really what we chose for the first one is really a topic that you know maybe deserved a little bit more time to actually work on because like it is just. It is one of it is one of the bleakest possible subjects, I think. I don't think we made a the mistake. The reality is that yeah, we made a mistake good. by diving into Afghanistan first. Yeah, I guess we may have made a mistake for our viewers who like did not get us. But now they know. Exactly now they know if they like the podcast. This is probably the bleakest it'll get, I think. Um, no, that's not true. No, it's going to get worse. Well, just in general, it'll probably get worse. Not, so, stay, so stay tuned. Or?